Welcome to the ASA Podcast. Hi, I'm Kerry Thoyers. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Sonography Journal, and I'm talking today with an author of one of the articles in our December issue, Donna Napier. Donna, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Kerry. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. Donna, your article on ultrasound of the eye um, was really good and it nicely covers the anatomy and the scanning techniques um, for ultrasound. Um, eye ultrasound is an examination that many sonographers might not get a chance to do, but they still need to keep up to date and with the knowledge around this examination, just for in case that one that comes through the door. So um, I'm going to grill you today and I thought I might just ask you to start with a few questions about the practicalities of performing a scan. So um, my first question to start with is what we should have ready and available before we start the scan, such as gel. So can you tell me why it's important that we use sterile gel rather than um, unsterile gel? Sure. So generally... I only use a large amount of sterile gel in my ocular scans as this allows the transducer to hover above the eye in the gel bath and it negates the need for that firm transducer pressure. So I always advocate for sterile gel because it's water-based and it's bacteriostatic because when we think about when we scan the eye, we're actually in close contact with the mucous membrane. So the importance of not introducing pathogens is especially relevant when we're dealing with an eye that's already compromised by infection or a traumatic injury such as a globe rupture. The sonographer should be mindful, however, that in some patients they they may have an allergy or a sensitivity to sterile gel. And this is especially the case because we're putting it in contact with delicate skin around the eye. So this has actually happened to me on a few occasions when my patients have developed redness, irritation and swelling after their exam. So in cases where it's known that the patient has an allergy, a tegaderm can provide a good barrier to prevent contact of the sterile gel and the periocular skin. But we should be aware that this can also introduce artefacts into our images. Mm, okay, I'm really glad that you mentioned um, artifact with you, the use of tegaderm because when I was doing my homework before the podcast, I um, found an art- or came across an article on the topic of using tegaderm in eye ultrasound. Um, it was published by Marks et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2022. And in that study, they reported that image quality was significantly reduced when using tegaderm. So, um, Would you agree with that or do you have any um, comments to make on that? Yeah, I do. So this is actually a discussion I've had recently with an emergency doctor who performs point-of-care orbital scans and has used tegaderms in the past. But his greatest complaint was that um, it introduced artefact into his images due to the lack of contact between the skin and the tegaderm. And this actually stopped him from using them completely. Um, In all honesty, I seldom use them in my uh, day-to-day practice um, because it is really difficult to remove those air bubbles that are trapped beneath the tegaderm. And I only really resort to using them if I have a patient that has a known allergy or upon the patient's request. So my clinical experience actually resonates with the outcome of the article that you've spoken about, Kerry. Um, I find that a tegaderm probably provides little benefit in regards to patient comfort, and it can actually mask subtle pathologies in the eye because of the artefact that is induced if the tegaderm isn't applied diligently. Okay, so that's really good, really good practical advice from someone who who um, does eye scans. Thank you very much. 
Um, I also just, now just wanted to go back more to the things that we need to have ready before the scan. What are your thoughts on using standoff pads when performing eye ultrasound? So standoff pads are really useful when looking at the eye um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, they reduce firm transducer pressure on the eye. They can enhance your image resolution and they can limit the gel exposure. But I, I understand that they're not always readily available in every ultrasound department. Um, their greatest use, however, um, is in the instance of globe rupture, as by limiting that firm transducer pressure on the eye, we can avoid extrusion of intraocular contents. Now, globe rupture is probably the major contraindication for ultrasound of the eye due to the potential for extrusion. However, I find that a standoff pad reduces this risk considerably. Mm, once again, really good practical help. And so I have a standoff pad available just for those cases of ocular ex extrusion, I guess. Um, now, I just wanted to move on to ultrasound equipment. Do you have any tips about the choice of transducer that we should be using? So ultrasound of the eye should be performed using a high-resolution linear transducer and one preferably with a small footprint. So in this instance, a hockey stick transducer is ideal, but any linear transducer that has high-resolution capabilities and a soft tissue preset is acceptable. Uh, the sonographer should be mindful, however, that the larger the footprint that you use to scan the eye will influence the amount of coupling agent that you will need to use. Yeah, so I'm guessing that most departments would have a transducer that's suitable for eye ultrasound then. What about the ultrasound machine settings? What do you um, advise about those? So in my opinion, the selection of the preset to undertake your eye examination is of the greatest importance, uh, considering that ocular structures actually have a higher sensitivity to ultrasound exposure. So if you have a machine that is without a dedicated ocular setting, uh, the sonographer must be mindful to keep the technical parameters such as the mechanical and thermal index within acceptable levels so we don't induce biological effects. Now, the FDA, for this reason, has set a maximum exposure level of a thermal index of one or less and a mechanical index of 0.23 or less. Now, these levels are much lower than those set for other diagnostic ultrasound exams due to the cornea, the lens and the periocular fat having high absorption rates, but lacking adequate perfusion. So this concept can be explained by the fact that any living tissue that has a high blood supply or a vascularity is able to cool itself relatively quickly. Unfortunately, when it comes to the eye, the cornea and the lens are both avascular structures and the periorbital fat has a relatively low vascularity, meaning that they lack adequate cooling mechanisms. So low exposure levels are really important to limit absorption and thus reduce the risk of any damage to these sensitive ocular structures. Mm, so very important about dose then. So while we're talking about um, exposure and safety, um, obviously minimising the scanning time is also a method to reduce exposure levels. Would you have any practical tips about reducing the scan time? Yes, Kerry. So minimising the time we spend scanning the eye is essential in keeping with the Alara principle, considering that the thermal biological effects are not only relative to temperature, but also to the duration or the time of exposure. So ways that the sonographer can limit this scanning time can be done simply by just removing the transducer from the patient's eye when real-time images aren't being acquired uh, or when they're manipulating frozen images such as applying calipers or annotation. Another useful tool is to use the CineLoop capture or the CineLoop store. 
because uh, this allows the sonographer to retrospectively view their ocular images without the prolonged exposure times or exposing the eye to that acoustic energy for too long. But while we're talking about exposure and limiting that in particular, um, I'd just like to touch on the mode in which we choose to scan the eye. That's really important as well. So if we think back to sort of our physics and our physical parameters, we know that when we're using B-mode imaging, it utilises a moving beam that disperses acoustic energy across a larger target area of tissue. But when we talk about Doppler applications, especially that of spectral Doppler, we're using a fixed beam that focuses that acoustic energy on a smaller area of tissue, and that actually increases tissue absorption levels. So it's for this reason that it's recommended that Doppler applications to the orbit be limited to less than one minute for each eye. Okay, so one minute's not a very long time, is it? So... Um, therefore, I guess it's really important to know which vessels we should be looking at and why and, and when we should be applying um, Doppler ultrasound. So what vessels do you regularly um, interrogate and why do, you, to look, why do you look at those? So I begin with the arteries. So the central retinal artery and the posterior ciliary arteries should always be interrogated as part of an exam where we're investigating acute visual loss or visual disturbance. So these arteries and their branches are actually responsible for retinal perfusion and they are susceptible to occlusion. And this can actually result in retinal infarction. And not many people sort of relate this to the fact that this is actually a type of ischemic stroke. So we should assess the these vessels for patency in the retroocular space. And if we do see a central retinal artery occlusion, we will appreciate the hallmark sonographic appearance of a hyperechoic focus overlying the optic nerve in the region of the occluded artery. In saying this, however, we should also interrogate the retina and assess its perfusion for any defects because if we see defects, it can actually give us an indication as to the vessel that may be compromised. If we see a defect located at the central aspect of the retina, then it may suggest that we have an occlusion of the central retinal artery. If we see a defect out towards the periphery or the lateral aspect of the retina, we could say that there's a suggestion that there's an occlusion in the posterior ciliary arteries. We can also see def deficits that span from the periphery into the central region of the retina. And if this is the case, we should consider that there is an occlusion of the ophthalmic artery because the central retinal artery and the posterior ciliary arteries are actually branches of this major vessel. Apart from the arteries, though, we need to make sure that we also have venous drainage and we assess for patency of the central retinal vein because that actually drains the optic disc. Now, in saying that, in my experience with scanning eyes, I have also been asked to detect or assess for arteriovenous malformations in that retroocular space as well. Mm, okay, so that's um, uh, you know quite a lot to um, understand and know about there. Um, using colour Doppler to assess the vascularity of the retina or choroid, perhaps when there's attachment, a detachment. Can you can you um, elaborate on that a little bit more for me? Sure. So when we're looking at posterior wall detachments, I always utilise colour Doppler because this can actually give the sonographer an indication as to the type of membrane that's involved in the detachment. So generally when we're dealing with an acute retinal detachment, we will see vascularity in a thin membrane. However, if the retinal detachment is chronic, the membrane will become thickened and we will see little to no vascularity at all. 
If we're dealing with the choroidal detachment, on the other hand, we will see flow within this membrane. And this is opposed to a vitreous detachment that will not display any vascularity when colour Doppler is applied. But while we're also talking about Doppler, a little segue, it's also really um, useful for the sonographer when it comes to trying to identify the location of intraocular foreign bodies, especially those that are small in calibre or those that may be embedded in the retroocular fat, which makes them actually difficult to see. So if we're dealing with a foreign body that's potentially metallic, just by popping on your colour Doppler, you will um, instigate the twinkle art effect and that will actually... Um, you know, help locate the foreign body within the eye. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good tip. Thank you. Um, now, if I could just move on to talking about scanning with the different eye movements. Now, double barrel question, I'm sorry. What's the purpose of this? And do you have any tips on how to instruct the patient on how to move their eye? So you're scanning with the eye closed and a really simple way of um, asking them to move their eye would, would be to move your finger and ask them to move their eye to watch your finger. However, when they've got their eyes closed, they can't do that. So how do you instruct the patient? So for me, to achieve maximum patient compliance during the exam, um, especially in relation to eye movements, I find it's really important to provide a thorough explanation of the procedure prior to starting. So what I do is that I explain that I'll be requiring them to look or move their eye in certain directions so I can better assess or better see some of the structures in the eye. So I explain to them that I'll, I need them to move their eye to their left behind a closed eyelid, that's the most important, towards their right, to look up towards the top of their head and down towards their toes, but whilst keeping their head completely still. So the purpose of eye movements when looking at the eye has multiple advantages. Firstly, it can improve the resolution of intraocular structures and it can also allow us to appreciate movement of vitreous echoes. Secondly, it can unmask subtle pathology and it can also distinguish artefact from pathology. So in, in general rule regarding this is that artefacts will remain fixed on the screen with eye movements and artefacts and pathology will actually move with the eye. But if we talk about um, assessing posterior wall detachments as well, eye movements can again help in the differentiation between which membrane is actually involved. So characteristically, um, in an acute retinal detachments, we will see a thin membrane that flutters within the vitreous cavity with eye movements. And this is opposed to a choroidal or an, a vitreous detachment that do not display any mobility when the eye is moved. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So that um, requires a sonographer to have a good um, understanding of their anatomy as well. Um, just in regards to anatomy, um, when we learn about the anatomy, anatomy of the eye, we're often taught about the retroocular muscles. Um, do you actually assess these? Um, and if so, are they are they difficult to visualise? Because I'm imagining the edge refraction artefact is a bit of a problem if, when looking at those muscles. It is, Kerry, you're right. Um, retroocular muscles are difficult to identify with ultrasound and they're not routinely assessed in in the scan. Um, but I feel it's important, however, that the sonographer be aware of their location when scanning the eye so that they can identify or detect any gross abnormalities that may exist within the retroocular space. Uh, it's my understanding that these muscles can be assessed using A-mode scanning. Um, and 
using this, their thickness can actually be measured in relation to certain pathological processes such as myositis, thyroid or orbitopathy and orbital venous congestion. Um, but in saying this, colour Doppler is also useful in visualising any venous congestion. And that's really important to note if you see that within your scan, because this venous congestion can actually contribute to secondary pathologies of those extraocular muscles. Hmm. Okay. So, um, and, and now also looking at the eye in comparison to scanning other areas of the body, when we scan other areas such as the abdomen, often increased transducer pressure really helps improve image quality. But this is not the case with the eye, is it? Um, in, the, in the case of the eye, it's less pressure is best. Can you explain um, to our listeners why this is the case? So firstly, I suppose because of the superficial location of the eye within the bony orbit, the pressure of the transducer is not necessary to achieve optimal resolution. Now, this combined with the fact that the eye contains fluid-filled chambers means that these chambers act as perfect acoustic windows to visualise internal ocular structures. So apart from being uncomfortable for the patient, firm transducer pressure is not recommended on the eye as it has the potential to increase intraocular pressure and this can actually manifest itself in multiple ways. So it can actually induce a decreased heart rate secondary to vagal stimulation. It can also cause a collapse of the anterior chamber of the eye, which is not at all useful for sonographers if they're actually trying to identify pathology in this region. And it can also cause an extrusion of intraocular contents in the setting of globe rupture. But as I've previously discussed, if we're using a standoff pad, then this potential for extrusion is uh, reduced considerably. Okay. So a very strong word of caution, light pressure when scanning the eye. Um, in your article, you also have outlined an image recording protocol, which was great. Um, and in it, you mentioned taking uh, measurements of the optic nerve. When should you take those measurements and how do you measure the optic nerve? So measurement of the optic nerve or in particular the optic nerve sheath diameter can be used to diagnose increased intracranial pressures. Now this is of clinical importance because the inner layer of the sheath is actually a continuation or an extension of the subarachnoid space of the central nervous system and an elevated intracranial pressure can force the cerebrospinal fluid into the optic nerve sheath and cause it to widen. So in a normal adult eye, optic nerve sheath diameters should be less than five millimetres. And so any measurements above this benchmark can indicate an increased intracranial pressure. Now, these increases in pressure can commonly result from trauma, intracranial hemorrhage or infection, mass effect, malignant hypertension, and even hypoxia. And that's just to name a few, few etiologies. Um, when we're measuring optic nerve sheath diameter, the measurement is actually made three millimetres posterior to the point at which the nerve attaches onto the posterior wall of the globe. And this has actually been shown through studies of cadavers to be the point in the nerve sheath that is most pronounced. It's really important, and I need to stress this, that an increased intracranial pressure should only be convincingly diagnosed when we see a dilatation in both of optic nerves. So it needs to be bilateral. If we only see a unilateral dilatation of a sheath, we need to suggest that this may be 
are a pathology that's inherent to the optic nerve itself, such as an optic neuritis. Another sign that may be indicative of an increased intracranial pressure is that we may appreciate the optic nerve being elevated or bulging within the vitreous cavity. And, you know, from my experience, this is a really important and interesting measurement to take because I, I spent a few years as an ultrasound application specialist and I was asked a lot to set up measurement protocols for the purpose of measuring this sheath diameter in intensive care patients. Now, ultrasound proves really useful in this area because, um, you know, these patients too diagnose an increased intracranial pressure, they require imaging such as an MRI or a CT or a clinical examination in the assessment of papilledema or edema of the optic disc. Now, in the acute setting or in the ICU environment, sometimes clinical assessment is difficult because of limited patient compliance or the pupil dilatation isn't enough to give a clear visualisation. And often in ICU patients, they're not stable enough to leave the safety of their environment. So using ultrasound negates both of these scenarios that I've just mentioned because it can actually be performed at the patient's bedside. Mm, so that um, makes it a really good POCUS application, doesn't it? Um, now, um, in your article, you also recommended scanning with low gain and high gain. And um, when you record those images, do you record the high gain and low gain images, or do you just record um, one or the other? So I like to record both in my representative images. So an optimized optimized image and deliberately overgain conditions because subtle pathology can sometimes be better appreciated in a deliberately overgained image, and it would be otherwise masked in an optimized image. So. At a minimum, I like to provide at least one overgained image of the entire eye so that we can better visualise vitreous echoes or echoes within any of the chambers. And it's also really helpful to uh, assess posterior wall attachments again, especially those that involve the retina or the vitreous membranes that by nature are thin and sometimes difficult to appreciate. Of course, we still need to provide optimised images in our series as well because we want to uh, show an accurate representation of other intra and extraocular structural structures and any pathologies that may be inherent to them. So reminder to some sonographers to turn that gain up and take some images as well as the optimised images. Um, if I could, let's go back to talking about anatomy. So... Um, do you think that sonographers sometimes get the posterior chamber and the posterior segment confused? And if they do, what are the ramifications of getting it confused? So absolutely, and it's it's an easy thing to get confused. Um, and just from my research, um, sometimes it's not well explained in the literature either. And so in my article, I actually attempted to try and clarify the anatomy. So the eye can be divided into an anterior and posterior segment by the lens. So the anterior segment is located between the cornea and the lens and the posterior segment is between the posterior aspect of the lens and the retina. Now, the anterior segment itself contains two chambers that are divided from each other by the iris. 
So there's a larger chamber that sits in front of the iris, and that is the anterior chamber. And then there's a smaller chamber that sits behind the iris, and that is what is referred to as the posterior chamber. Now, this is very different to the posterior segment and the chamber that exists within the posterior segment, which is the vitreous chamber or the vitreous body. So, Kerry, when you're talking about ramifications, definitely there is obviously those that can ensue like incorrect labelling. However, more seriously, it can also, confusion can lead to a misdiagnosis of pathology, which is obviously a very undesired outcome. So this is uh, especially relevant or significant when we think about the different fluid that is contained in the posterior chamber as contained in the vitreous chamber of the posterior segment. So in the vitreous chamber, there's vitreous humour. And this is significant because it's only produced during embryological development and therefore it's never replaced. Instead, this gel-like substance goes through an age-related liquefaction process that begins around the fourth year of life and it progresses continually until around 50% of this humour is actually liquefied by the age of 70. And many pathological processes of the eye are thus, you know, relative to this physiological evolution. So then if we consider this, and then we also consider the fact that when we have a globe rupture, we can lose this non-replaceable vitreous humour through extrusion. Now, this is significant because vitreous humour maintains the shape of the eye, it maintains intraocular pressure, it supports the lens, and it also holds the retina firmly against the choroid. Now, when we consider the fluid that's held in the posterior chamber, this is actually aqueous humour, which is a thin water-like substance that also plays a part in the maintenance of intraocular pressure but, and it provides nutrients to the lens and cornea, but it's actually continually replaced by the ciliary bodies and therefore its volume loss isn't as consequential as the loss of vitreous humour. So that's important then that we don't get confused between the posterior segment and the posterior chamber. Thanks very much for explaining that. And I have to admit that when I was studying this a long time ago, I did get the terminology confused, so it's important. Donna, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, I hope that by listening to this podcast and reading your article in the Sonography Journal, sonographers can have more confidence in scanning the eye. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kerry. I hope that's helped everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ASA podcast. Head to the show notes or the ASA website to find more information, resources and CPD activities.